you have to think as a founder like is this investor gonna add value to my firm and and is this investor gonna make my firm a better firm uh, um, and I think that is the question you have to ask and and also like in this decision process you have to grill your the, the VCs you interact with like how are they going to support you um, how can they add value what is their vision for the business This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. For the first time in two years, the Most Awesome Podcast has stepped out of the virtual world and back into the real one. And I can't think of a better way to kick off this chapter than with my next guest. Joining me today is the one and only Christian Mehrmann, Vehau alum, former chief marketing officer of Zalando, and founding partner of Berlin-based venture capital firm Cherry Ventures. If you know anything about the startup scene in Germany, then you know about Christian and Cherry. They played a central role in the rise of some of Germany's most well-known startups, some from VHU even, um, from Flaschenpost to Flink, Flix, Flixbus to Forto, Amorali to Auto Eins, and so many more. But today the focus is on Christian, his incredible rise through Berlin's startup scene, and just a few of the many rich lessons that he's learned along the way. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Welcome, Christian. Thanks a lot, Gareth. Great to be here. Great to finally have you on the on the show. We've yeah. been talking about this for a few years, and then we That's were true. interjected by a damn global pandemic. Yeah. So um, I'm super excited to do this in person again. Yeah, me too. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me in your offices. Um, so as you know, the way we kind of like to start things off um, is since we are the most awesome founder podcast, is hearing a little bit about your founder journey and your entrepreneurial journey, where you come from, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, cool. Yeah, happy to give you some some color on that. So maybe starting with my studies at WHU. Um, so I graduated there in 2007. And at the time, it was pretty much like uh, after graduation, you either almost had to go into investment banking or consulting or you join a corporate and only the not so good students, they started a, an own firm. And uh, so I joined BCG um, for three years, so did the classical consulting track, actually really liked it. Uh, and then uh, wanted to do my, my PhD there, which is a bit kind of a standard program. Then while I was two months into uh, that educational leave, uh, I had read already three papers, so not that much. <laughs> but then uh, Robert, uh, from uh, who studied with me uh, and had founded Zalando, he reached out and said, look, kind of we started Zalando, it's, it's go going well. But, you know, you always had marketing as a major at uni. Don't you want to join us as CMO? So I said, look, yeah, sounds interesting. Let me fly to Berlin, have a look. Uh, then I really liked it. It was still... 
a very small firm, so around 50 people. Um, and I have to say, I had also no clue about online marketing, right? But I thought, look, yeah, I learned a little bit about marketing and, and branding and, and how to manage a brand uh, at, at university. Um, I had not really done anything regarding that at BCG, but I thought I can figure it out. Uh, and then I joined them. Uh, that was 2010. Um, did that until... Uh, shortly before the IPO, so it was an absolutely wild ride. So when I left Zalando, it was 12,000 people versus uh, 50 when I joined. We spent uh, 250 million a year on advertising. We were the largest customers of Google and Facebook in Europe at the time. So it was really a wild ride. Kind of, I learned a lot. Yeah? So the learning curve was extremely steep for for those three years. And um, we went into 15 international markets, which uh, was also exciting because you always think, ah, okay, we've entered one new market, so the other ones are going to be exactly the same. But we learned this the hard way <laughs> every time we went into a new market. And then uh, afterwards, kind of, I joined uh, for one and a half years uh, a corporate, Pig and Kloppenberg, a stationary fashion company. At the time, I felt, look, sounds interesting to help in kind of an old school corporate uh, become more digital. I quickly had to figure out. Okay, it's it's much harder than I thought, uh, and not necessarily kind of what I want to do for the future. Although being a board member there, like you can't kind of do that much uh, in terms of having freedom, responsibilities, and so on. And then we had started Cherry while we were still at Zalando. Uh, so my co-founder Philip and I, also a WHU alum, uh, we sat next to each other at Zalando. Uh, he was leading product um, and business development. And then after secondary, we had a little bit of cash and thought, look, what are we going to do with it? So we thought, why don't we start angel investing? Uh, at that time, the the angel investment scene was still tiny in Germany. So there were maybe like two hands full of, of business angels. That was it. And then we started and we said, why don't we just kind of name it also in a proper way? Um, and then we came up with the name of Cherry already and started investing. Um, the kind of Flixbus is one of the first deals. Uh, Auto One, Quandu, a few others, and you know, did this as a hobby for quite some time. Really liked it, uh, and then 2016, we decided to do this full time and raise external capital to to start a proper venture firm, and that's where we are today. I want to I want to go back to something that you said that I think is really interesting is. When you joined Zalando, you studied marketing, but you didn't really know much about digital marketing. Yeah. And you ended up, you know, leading a, a business unit that was the, you know, the largest spender in Google in on the whole continent. How did you how did you acquire those skills? Did you come in as CMO? Did you have mentors within the company that was teaching you that, or did you just kind of learn it along the way? Yeah, good good question. So Look, when I started, I was actually CMO number three already. So the other two I hadn't worked out. <laughs> so Robert was like, okay, let's let's be smart about this and maybe not name you CMO on, on day one because people will quickly figure out that you have absolutely no clue <laughs> about online marketing and, and cookies and tracking and you know all, all of that stuff was completely new to me at the time. So we said, I'm, uh, I think it was like project manager marketing or whatever the title was. At the time, actually, also titles didn't matter that much at Zalando, actually, for, for quite some time. So, and then kind of I started more on the analytics side of marketing, which was obviously easier. Uh, and then uh, kind of a friend of mine, um, he recommended me a book called Website Boosting 2.0. It's a 500-page book, uh, and even a large one, <laughs> so a lot to read. And, and what I then did is 
I got up every morning at five. I read for three hours in this book, then went to work, worked until whatever, 10, 11 at night, then went back home, read another few pages, went to bed, and then the, the day started again. So it was really, I'd say the first probably two, three months of Zalando were the kind of most intense time of my life. And because the problem was that like, compared to BCG, where like a consulting, I mean, you also join a firm and a project and you have no clue about it. But after two, three weeks, you quickly get it. And it is sufficient if you stay on a fairly superficial level. But here, as a CMO, when you have to spend money every day, like you can't afford to be superficial, right? So you need to understand everything until the very last detail. And then once I was kind of like named CMO, probably after whatever, two months, you know, you have people come to your desk every day and ask, hey, should I spend 10K here or there? Like, what do you think? Right. And you have to have an answer uh, on that. And can like in the beginning, I always said, yeah, look, let me <laughs> think about it. I'll get back to you tomorrow. But then obviously after a while and after understanding things better, you get more routine and, and, and things get easier. But, but I think it's incredibly important to understand everything until the very last detail, especially in the in the early days of a company. I mean, that was also relatively early days in the digital marketing world. So it's understandable that you didn't have a, an education so much in that. Uh, I wonder if there's still, even today, you know, people that are studying marketing are actually getting much education and being able to, to run digital very effectively. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is that, like, whenever I'm back at WHU, that by now like people learn like CAC to LTV and, and you know understand the marketing channels much better like when I learned it it was more about like price and promotion and, and how to build a brand so like very more the strategic marketing and the brand marketing which was also important but it wasn't important in the early days of Zalando it was more important like two years in or so and then suddenly we're, we woke up and we're like ah okay there's something like you need to give some more color to your brand, you need to measure things and, and all of that. But for the very early days, in order to get traction for a company, I mean, it's very number driven and very like online marketing heavy. My feeling is that the good schools, by now you learn more and also like the more internships you can do and learn more. Um, but I think the best is probably learning by doing, right? So you join a firm and then you just see how it, how it goes. Right. Well, I think that's a good segue is talking about learning by doing, because that seems to be kind of the theme of your your career. Um, I'm guessing you didn't. Did you buy another book when you got into angel investing and, or and VC or how did you make yeah. that transition? That's actually a good question. I think that I, I even read a book when we decided to do more and more angel deals. But that was like a, a fairly, fairly basic one. Um, I think they're kind of two. Yeah, to get into angel investing, it was in the beginning more like we met up with other angels, uh, learned a little bit kind of how they do it, what is it that they're kind of looking for. And I think angel investing is obviously a bit easier than doing this full time with external money, right? Because A, you're only responsible for your own money. So it's up to you, right? And it's also, it's more like a, a clear people bet and you meet founders and you think they're great and, and you give them money do a little bit of research on the market, but not so much. You probably also don't do so much research on competition, but you just have a feeling and, and then uh, you spend money. And if it doesn't work out, it's fine because it's only your money, right? It's still annoying if you lose it, obviously, but, but it's a bit different. So if you then do this full time um, as a venture capitalist, obviously you have to be much more thorough um, the way you do this. Plus, 
there are certain fund economics that need to work, right? So you have this classical, I need a fund returner, so one investment that returns the fund, that means it needs to be a billion dollar company, so the market size needs to be X. So many more requirements that you need to look at uh, and, and more time that you need to spend on a deal, right? Uh, on the other hand, you also have a team, so you have more capacity and bandwidth to do so. I mean, you you came into Zalando, you made some of your own money, you were able to angel invest, but then it was with Cherry where you really first started experience fundraising, right? And yeah. when you're fundraising for a, a, a VC fund, it's a totally different ball game, you know, yeah. totally different economics and whatnot, um, different structures, different expectations than you would as a, as a startup founder. Um, was that a, was that a fast learning process or did you, did you feel like you had the, the people around you? Because, you know, I remember I started a company in Germany in 2010 and when it was time to raise capital, there weren't a whole lot of investors to yeah. choose from. So we ended up moving back to the US. So did you have mentors? Did you have other VCs that supported you or did you guys just kind of yeah. wing it? No, like we, we did that, right? So we talked to a bunch of our kind of Zalando investors and, and learned a bit from them, went to the US, met a bunch of VCs there also to learn kind of how, how they do their business, how they fundraise on the LP side. And then, yeah, when we started, we located what's the best way to raise money. Then we had heard that there is a fund called the, the EIF, the European Investment Fund. So that's kind of a public money fund that invests into European funds, especially for the, the first-time funds. And uh, But we had also heard <laughs> that it can take a while until you get the approval. So we started the process with them knowing it's probably going to take like half a year or so, at least. And then we were like, okay, what are we going to do for the next six months? So we started talking to other entrepreneurs that we knew from our network. Um, and while we talked to them, they were all like, ah, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You're starting a VC fund run by you with your experience as entrepreneurs. So that seems to be very valuable for founders. It's a good idea. Can, can I also invest, right? And then uh, we, we had this a few times. We're like, okay, maybe we open up a pool of what we call now our entrepreneur LPs. We by now, and we've done this since the first fund actually, we now have 50 entrepreneurs that are invested in the fund. Um, they have a certain kind of minimum ticket size, so it makes sense kind of for both sides. Um, and, and through this, we raised, I think, 35 million at the time. By then, uh, also the EIF kind of was ready and, and gave us the approval. And then from then on, it was a bit easier to, to get access to more LPs, like family offices, um, it was mostly European money in the first institutional fund. And then afterwards, and, and by now, we have much more uh, American investors, so pension funds and university endowments, which basically doesn't exist here in, in Europe in the same form. Uh, but they're very big venture investors in, uh, in the world, right? So, um, yeah, and, and that's kind of how, how that has changed. And now you're on fund three? Uh, fund, four. fund four, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I, I'm I'm interested to to talk about a, go a little deeper on the fun side because mm -hmm. there's it's such a dynamic world out there. We're seeing so many different fund structures, rolling funds, different types of management fee structures, more competition, more micro funds popping up everywhere. LPs desperate to deploy to join funds and and get turned away, even in some cases. How have you seen again? Considering you got into the VC game relatively early in Germany, how have you seen the VC ecosystem change since you got started? Yeah, 
Yeah, I'll say it, it has changed massively, right? So when we started 20, 2016 to do this full-time, like at the time there were very few funds in Europe run by former inter entrepreneurs. I think in Germany we're actually the, the, the first one to do this. Um, and that was a big differentiator, right? And, and we were the new kids on the block, uh, the... <laughs> One uh, media outlet always called us the the hipster VC, uh, <laughs> although I think we don't look very hipster, but uh, but that was how they called us. So I think you know at the time we gave it a bit of a new vibe and, uh, and and a new push, and I think that was good. That also helped to wake up some of the incumbents, so to speak, um, that had done a bit kind of their the old way of of doing business. So they woke up, uh, and then now six years fast forward to today. I mean, it has changed massively, right? So, uh, like, A, if you look at, on, from the market side, at funding volumes, I mean, this has just gone up massively, right? Especially even in the last year. So how much more money is going into the European ecosystem? Then looking at kind of money coming from the US, uh, that has changed dramatically, not only on the LP side, but also on the US fund side. So almost every large US firm has by now either set up an office in Europe or is actively investing here, right? So some firms like Sequoia, Bessemer, General Catalyst, they all open offices in London, and then others like Andreessen, NEA, they kind of fly in and, and do their deals. Uh, I think either of those uh, like options work. So that has changed massively. And then um, you have the hedge funds like a Tiger Global, Coto, that suddenly joined the game and started on the very late stage side of the business, so series C and D, um, initially even doing more emerging markets, then uh, they invested into Flush and Post, I think three years ago, and that was still like a big thing, that them investing uh, into a German company. But by now, I mean, their current fund is, I think, 12 billion uh, of a size. And now after the recent drop in public markets, they even decided to go earlier, right? So Tiger says their core stage is now suddenly Series A, right? So you see at Series A, it's getting extremely competitive. We only do seed, so it's it's not as bad kind of for us. But the the extreme competition in Series A obviously leads the large firms also to go even earlier, right? And they feel, hey, if it's competitive at, at Series A and B, why don't I do even earlier tickets, right? So I think that it's a wild market by now. Um, but as always, I think competition is good and, and helps the whole ecosystem become more professional and, and, and overall become become better. I think it's a really interesting topic is is the topic of deal flow. Mm -hmm. Like I saw a couple days ago even that Sequoia is launching this accelerator type yeah. program in London, yeah. million bucks in yeah. pre-seed money for these early, early stage ventures, doubling what YC is doing, yeah. which they recently doubled their money. So you're seeing bigger ticket sizes, bigger valuations, you're getting the Sand Hill Road big dogs, you're getting Target and SoftBank throwing money around Berlin as well. Um, how does that affect the homegrown German VCs? Do you, do you feel like you have such a good position as kind of one of the German brands that in, entrepreneurs want to come to you? Or do you feel like a lot of the entrepreneurs in the ecosystem are just going to chase the best valuation or the best, you know, international brand? Yeah, look, I'd say kind of the, um, I mean, by now also we have uh, kind of developed as more of a European firm. So we have an office in Stockholm where we have a partner, then uh, we just open an office in London. So 
we are like we have a, a European footprint by now, which I think is important. So you don't want to be seen as just a, a German uh, VC firm because I think that makes it less attractive for founders. I think the the differentiation comes from like how much is the seed deal core to the venture firm, right? So for us, we clearly say seed is our core business, and we only do. 12 to 15 deals a year. So every deal we do, we do this with full attention. It's always a partner kind of in the board that is working actively with the company. Then we have a strategic resources team of people doing HR for the companies, um, communications, we have a person for that, finance, helping the founders. So we really give very hands-on support. And that's our core, right? If you, as a founder, decides to go for one of the, the big funds, the problem is, like, if you if you take money out of a two billion fund and they invest one or two million to you, you can also do the math and figure out like how important are you going to be for that fund, right? And especially for that partner who has, and, and if the partner has to figure out, am I going to spend an hour with the company where I just invested a million in, or the one where I just wrote a hundred million check into, right? And, and it's always going to be obviously for the hundred million check. So. And, and I think that is exactly the problem. Uh, and and as a founder, I'd always go for the core stage of that fund. I think that that helps you most. Um, I don't think it's, it helps you to have a big brand in too early. For them, it's just buying optionality, right? They see the competition in the core stage and want to make sure they get in early and then they can figure out if the company is doing well or not. If it's doing well, they double down. If not, they just drop it. And then you have a big problem as a founder because... It's very bad signaling if, you know, Sequoia, Andres, whatever it is, your seed, but then doesn't follow on in the A, right? Then the company is almost dead. That's a good point. Um, when I was building my first venture-backed business, I had a, one of my mentors and investors said, Garrett, the money is the easy part. <laughs> you know, you can get the money. It's what comes <clears throat> along with it that's really the differentiator. And I've learned that a few times the easy way. And the way. <laughs> <laughs> what, Absolutely. Getting out of it. Um, let, let's maybe bring it back to, to our audience a little mm-hmm. bit, you know. Um, you're, you're a Vehau guy. You have clearly invested in quite a few Vehau founders, mm-hmm. many of which have become uh, enormously successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've seen a lot of zero to ones, yep. you know, from, from the pretty early stage and particularly even coming out of that ecosystem. What do you look for? What yep. are the kind of... Uh, characteristics of the founders and of the businesses that pique your attention and, you know, attract your interest or if you see any patterns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, that's always the the billion dollar question, right? So what is the best uh, founder or best business to invest in? So the way we look at it is like we want founders that are like absolutely passionate about the topic um, and that are extremely driven and committed to to what they're building, right? So, what we don't like, um, but we see quite often, is founders that say, "Ah, oh, I looked at this company uh, that's doing well in the U.S. I've, I'm not particularly interested in that sector, but I thought, look, if they raise on a billion dollar valuation, I can just copy it and, and do it for the German market." And so that's not very compelling, right? So we want people that really do this. Um, with their kind of biggest passion and, and commitment, because in the end it's a very long run, uh, so it, it takes seven to ten years to to build this company and exit it. So you need people 
that really like it uh, and, uh, and and have strong passion for that because otherwise there will be downs in in this journey and and I think you have to manage them and it's much easier if you if you really like what you're doing uh? so i think that's that's one then i think the and and that's the thing especially for for vau which is a, a pure business school right so ideally in that founder team we want to see complementarity right so not three or even sometimes four business guys starting an idea you obviously since it's a tech business you need someone that has a technical understanding right so what we love to see is one strong tech profile in the team one more commercial or, or business mindset, I think that's already probably enough. Eh? I think also too big of a team doesn't necessarily help. Eh? And and we want to see that people want to build a very large company, right? So as I mentioned earlier, with this whole fund logic and you need to find kind of billion dollar outcomes, that means people need to go for really big problems, right? And uh, and, and if people are saying, look, yeah, the market in Germany is, is one billion in size, then that's not for us, right? Because the, the market share that you can probably get is like maximum 10%, right? So it's a hundred million business. It's very hard then to build this out into a, a multi-billion dollar business, uh, unless it's hundred million software revenue, then it's obviously a bit easier, but let's say it's, it's, it's a different market. So I think like really thinking hard about, can this become a billion dollar business? And am I solving a problem that is relevant and, and big enough, right? So we have this, if it's a consumer business, we have this 10x question. So does it, is the product really 10x better than what is out there? I think if you, as a founder, ask yourself this question, that always <laughs> helps, right? Because there's some businesses that are incrementally better, but that's just not enough. Huh? If you go more for a B2B business, um, I think it's a bit less competitive so you have a bit more time to build out the product on the other hand then also usually that the product and tech skills are more important and um, that's not necessarily what you learn at business school so you have to find a way how to learn it or find someone else kind of for your team that that has all that knowledge and i think the b2b or enterprise also tends to grow slower Right? Yeah. You deal yeah. with slower, slower yeah. sales cycles. But, you know, talking about the, the market size, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm going to put on my, my American hat. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can take that off and put on my German hat, too, by, by birth. <laughs> but um, putting on my American hat and, and maybe be the, the Yahoo cowboy a little bit. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I've talked with a lot of founders with, young founders in Germany, is, you know, go big or go home. Mm-hmm. You have to have you have to have your eyes on a global market. And I think there's been a history mm-hmm. and uh, with all due respect to the tremendous success of Rocket, but there is a longstanding history of um, building copycats, but just really building businesses specifically for the DAC market. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that that era is kind of dead now, or do you think the the German companies coming up really need to be looking at a globally competitive space? Are you looking for TAMs that are, you know, targeting global market? Yeah, I'd say first of all, the this kind of copycat culture that that used to be here, whatever, fifteen years ago. I think yeah, that is that is dead. I think people are are not just looking at hey, what can I copy, and then I do it for the German market and then I sell it to the original company in in the US for 100 million. I think that has luckily stopped. So people are thinking more about like what is like a really big business that I can build. I think still some companies are more 
geared towards European market leadership. And that is also fine if the market is big. If, for example, if you take uh, Flink and the quick commerce space, right? So if you just look at the even the German grocery market is already uh, 300 billion in size, right? So being like building a, a European champion, that's totally, that's already like a, a 20 billion plus company, right? So I think from that perspective, it's, uh, it is okay. And also there is a certain risk in going global on day one, if you're not a software business, uh, and then just kind of spreading yourself, yourself too thin and, and then you're in 10 markets and nothing works, right? So, and that's also what we've learned the hard way at Zalando. If you have an operational component to your business or any e-commerce or you know anything that is not just purely software, every market is different. Every market has different payment methods, different logistics setups, whatever, right? So you need to go one by one to really win the market. And if you do 20 markets at the same time, chances are very low <laughs> that you're going to succeed. If it's a pure software business or crypto business, for example, or gaming business, very different, right? So you're global on day one. Um, you're competing globally on day one. And that also means once you launch your product, you need to make sure it's really good. On the other hand, the opportunity is also then like much bigger and, uh, and, and it's also nicer to see. Right? So the, the gaming companies we've invested in, then suddenly you see, oh, wow, it's picking up in the US and you only need kind of that one English version that you can then suddenly scale massively and you don't worry about the, the small European countries anymore, at least not for a certain period of time. So I think, yeah, and these global companies can come from anywhere, right? And they can come from a remote setup. That's also fine. Um, we know also with a new fund, we launched a new crypto fund um, and that invests more, I mean, primarily with a focus on European companies, but also uh, we've just done a deal in Hong Kong, one in the US. So that's a bit more global because this whole scene is is way more global and uh, and teams are more remote. So it's it's a very different competitive set from, from day one on. I'd like to, you know, as we're talking about scaling and, and in some cases, you know, examples of premature scaling, um, we touched on uh, a term offline that I think is worth digging into. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we can thank once again the, the brilliant Reed Hoffman for it. But it's the idea of blitzscaling, yeah. right? Um, can you share what that means to you, and when you feel that that's appropriate, and where what you think you know the line can be crossed? I think at a certain point, yeah. um, I yeah. think that's a term that probably a lot of people aren't familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So I think the the concept of, of blitzscaling I think is a, an interesting one. So the, it, it usually kind of happens in, in consumer companies and, and more so even in recent times when there's so much funding available that there's also a lot of competition. If you look at, I would say, in the, the two classical examples for that in, of, of recent times in Europe is probably one is, uh, is mobility with the e-scooters, uh, a theme that came up four years ago. Suddenly, we looked at the market, suddenly there were eight companies doing exactly the same in Europe. There were already two um, that had done it in the US, so the model was kind of proven. Um, and the barriers uh, to entry were extremely low, right? So the only thing you need is a bit of money to buy these scooters and throw them on the street. That's and an app, and that was it. So uh, barriers to entry low, a lot of capital chasing the model because people felt, hey, you can scale this quickly. It's interesting. Um, so that was four years ago, and then one and a half years ago, you had this whole market of uh, quick commerce, and same again, ten companies, everyone chasing the same market. 
and, uh, and 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 the same craziness, or like it was even crazier because the market is is much bigger. And then when you have such a model, and uh, and if you look at Europe, then there's for the quick commerce space, there were ten companies trying to do exactly the same, right? The question is, is your logo pink, blue, green, whatever? I mean, if that's the only differentiator, it's tough. And then the, in the concept of blitz scaling, you need to make sure you quickly become number one because the, the theory behind it is only number one can raise money and only if you can raise money, you can make sure you're sustainably number one and can build out a large business. If you're not able to get to market leadership, it's going to be very tough and, and you're going to die or get consolidated. Right? And in the concept of blitz scaling, then that means after you found product market fit, that is obviously a prerequisite. Otherwise, it, uh, it, it goes kind of very bad. But once you've found that, you really hit the gas and you just go aggressively into scaling mode, right? And and you all that also means you do things that are in the beginning not very efficient, right? So you have to ignore unit economics in the beginning. Uh, so in, in in that case of quick commerce, you don't worry too much if you're actually going to make money on a on a first order because you believe I need to win the market once I have a customer. The customer orders whatever, uh, like one to two times a week, right? So I just need to get this customer, and then the whole thing works out two years down the line, right? So I don't worry about unit economics, and you burn through a lot of money. Um, but you you need to do this, and and that's kind of what what people call blitzkrieg, like being really aggressive, launching new markets quickly, sometimes doing things that are extremely inefficient all with the, with the uh, objective to become number one quickly. So I, I have to ask this question. I apologize if it's controversial, but German investors are historically known for being early revenue, early profitability, while I would say American investors have kind of had that blitzscaling mentality a little bit more. You know, get to the top of the mountain and then fight everyone from climbing up and trying to catch you. A lot of people are saying that the German investment community is starting to take on more of an American thesis. Um, hearing you talk about blitzscaling, is that validating it? Is that correct? Or are German investors now more open to the go big, go fast, and we'll worry about profitability later? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I agree. I think 15 years ago, probably German investors would have been way more cautious. Um, also, if you look at, and, and that's then how kind of our LPs also look at, at funds like us, right? So it's it's totally okay. Like per fund you invest into, like, or we invest into 35 to 40 companies, it's totally fine that some of them don't work out, right? So in, in the LPs, our fund investors, they actually want to see us taking risk, right? And do these bets that can also go completely wrong, right? But on the other hand, these also have the upside to really outperform, right? And, and I think... This used to be very American mentality, and the Germans were like, oh, okay, I'd rather do the 2x growth in your software business, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's close to profitability. I think that has changed, and especially we at Cherry, we don't mind businesses that are capital intensive, right? So if, if you look at our biggest success cases, and, and maybe starting with Zalando, I mean, we we needed 700 million until the IPO. If you look at, at Flixbus, has raised more than a billion, Auto One the same, Flash and Post took, I think, 250, 300 million until the exit. 
uh, Flink uh, has raised over a billion now. So all of them have raised a lot of money. I think as an investor, you need to get comfortable with that if you like this type of businesses, right? I mean, there's also amazing software investors that only do do that. But but I think we're also okay in taking that risk and and, and, and embark on those a bit kind of wilder journeys as well. What, one more question about that, because I think it's it's really interesting. So if you look at kind of past big money deals in mm. Europe, um, once it went beyond Series A, the foreign money started coming in, yeah. right? Like you said, the the pension funds, the hedge funds, the funds of funds from from other parts of the world. Are you seeing now more homegrown Series B, Series C, or is it still being dominated by foreign capital? I would say, like, if we differentiate between European and, and German level, right? So maybe starting with the German level, I think there's basically no growth capital, right? So. It, it maybe there's kind of Lake Star that once in a while does a Series B, but that's pretty much it. Right? They're the only one um, that, that have the, the right size of a fund to do that. On a European level, there are a few more that can also write larger checks, but still completely different from the US. Right? I mean, if you look at US late stage rounds, whenever I look at, at kind of Crunchbase, which is a bit kind of our daily <laughs> daily read. You see rounds, like 200, 300 million rounds, led by firms that even I have never heard of, right? So there's so many more funds out there. And and still, like, every round, probably bigger than 100 million, is for sure financed from someone that is non-European, I would say. Because there's just not not enough capital here in in Europe still. I'm curious, you know, we did touch base on some of these hyper-growth business models that we've seen out there, whether it was mobility with the scooters or, or quick commerce. Um, you know, there have been these these trends like that. Let's, let's talk about the future mm-hmm. a little bit. I have my own hypotheses about what the next generation's going to look like. What do you see as the, you know, the kind of exciting uh, sectors or businesses or technologies that are gonna be the big bets in the next, you know, maybe decade or a few years or whatever you yeah. want. Yeah, look, we're, we're a generalist fund, right? So we invest into almost everything that has a tech component. So B2B, B2C, um, and, and we clearly decided not to focus too narrowly. And then internally, we split uh, across different sectors to make sure we also have the, the, the depth that is needed. Like where we see kind of a lot of interesting happen- stuff happening is one is, is fintech. We've done a lot of stuff there um, and, and see more and more very interesting models that are that are coming up. Second is uh, second big area is, is everything Web three. Uh, I mean it's it's just getting started. Um, there have been specialist funds uh, in the beginning. Then Andreessen probably is the you know one of the big names that that really. Uh, is, is successful there, but then now as more and more people kind of moving into that segment, then uh, third area sustainability. Uh, so everything around that, there's suddenly more also large funds uh, like Goldman set up one kind of BlackRock that are just purely investing into sustainable sustainable businesses that can help our planet to be more sustainable. This can be in like, for example, we've done a, a company in Finland, um, which is a CO2 removal company. Uh, so it can be in that space. It can be everything around batteries, energy, 
usage, all of that. So there's like very large areas in, on, on that. And then I think in all other sectors, we also still see great opportunities where large markets get digitalized, get disrupted. And, and I think that will never stop, right? So, and, and even if you take travel, for example, which obviously was a bit dead in the last two years due to COVID, but even there, that was one of the very first sectors generally that that uh, got digitized. Um, but even there will be more opportunities, right? Uh, it's probably not going to be as big as, as fintech because there's still way more ground to cover. But we believe there are great opportunities in, in every sector and, um, and and we'll see kind of what, what the future holds. Yeah? So you you just touched on disruption in in the tech space and in the startup scene. What do you see as the pending disruption in the VC space? How is this industry going to change? Because I would say most pundits see something changing in the near future. This yeah. model has been extremely uh, successful for. I mean, we're getting close to half a century now, yeah. um, and it's remained relatively similar, I yeah. would say. Um, do you see changes coming in the in the venture capital world too? Yeah, look, it's it's interesting because uh, if you ask all VCs, they all think they're super innovative, and uh, and and we're such a modern industry. We are in the way of the type of businesses we back. Obviously, uh, if you compare us to to classical private equity. But our industry itself hasn't been innovative, as, as you pointed out, right? So I think the the innovations that have come is, I mean, if you look at Sequoia, that kind of launched their evergreen fund, right? So getting out of this whole like 10-year fund life cycle where you then need to sell the shares in a company and, and they want to make sure they hold them longer because obviously if they had <laughs> kept their shares in Apple and Google and, and whatnot, it, it would have been better than selling them, right? I think that's, uh, I mean, they, they made amazing returns anyways, but but obviously makes sense to, to keep your shareholding longer. So I think this is something that we will see more and more. So funds transitioning from a classical 10-year fund lifetime into more of an like evergreen structure. There's different ways of doing it, but but I think that is that is a theme we will see more and more. I think then like that that is probably already the biggest disruption, right? So I don't think there's there are going to be massive changes, right? So I don't think kind of investing like via blockchain that was initially but the question, you know, or like the way you invest is, is that going to be entirely different? I'm not necessarily sure. I think the way investors work with their companies, it's always going to be kind of a, you know, a personal interaction, I think, because that makes the difference, especially at early stage. I think what is changing a bit is that money has become more and more a commodity, and especially when it goes to late stage financing. So Series C onwards, I would say. There, I think the brand matters less, and it's more important just to get money, right? And then you have funds like Tiger, Koto, that understood for themselves, look, our business is making returns, and as long as we make 12, 14% RR, we're good. And, and if we just deploy money without having to work too much with it, uh, that's a scalable approach, right? So if you have no board seat, if you don't work with a company and just drop 50 million and then you move out, it also it's also a business model, right? And um, and I think so far that has worked well for them. So I think that is, is a bit of a change. But yeah, I don't think it's going to change fundamentally. What about technology? 
Um, I am I'm reading more and more about AI and deep learning algorithms, um, people playing with models to be able to assess outcomes of new ventures, potentially um, helping to evaluate deal flow, things of that sort. Do you think, I mean, right now there's, it's very much, a, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very much a human to human interaction. There's a little bit of instinct combined with analysis. Um, as the machines take over so much of our, to optimize our decision-making processes, do you think that that's also going to start trickling into, into your world as well? Yeah, I think it depends a bit on the stage of the fund, right? So if you take us as a, as a seed stage fund, I think there um, the secret sauce is probably more in the sourcing mode, right? And, and what we've done over the last years, we've developed a tech stack without going too much into detail and sharing kind of all the secrets, but to make sure we see companies very early, we reach out to founders early before they basically even think of a new idea. Right? So we want to make sure we're close to, to the right people. I think there there's a lot that has happened and I think there will be more happening. Then if you go more into series B stage and, and later, I think there you can do way more, as you said, to kind of with AI and data. And it starts with very simple things, what, what many of the later stage funds do is tracking on LinkedIn, you know, employee growth of a company. So they know, okay, wow, if a company is hiring like crazy, it must be going pretty well. Um, obviously, you can monitor traffic on the websites to take this as an indicator. And then you plug in, once you're interacting with the company, you plug in all the data into your models. And I think it gives you kind of quite a good a forecast for the future of that company plus you know looking at net revenue retention churn you can you know put all of that into models and and i think get a pretty good and, and predictable outcome i think for seed and series a it's less helpful right because as, as you said right i mean you're backing founders and and you have to be like 100 percent convinced that, that this team is is going to be the winning one and this cannot really be automated. I mean, we've obviously thought a lot about it, like what can we do better? Like, are there more data points to pull? But ultimately, it's also a gut feel that matters, right? So, and, and, and there's no way to automate gut feel. Well, it's interesting what you said about using technology to find deals early, mm -hmm. right? Like, I remember when I raised my Series A round, how as soon as that hit crunch base, the M&A hawks were just, you know, circling. Um, now I see it happening in a different way. As soon as a founder puts stealth mode on their LinkedIn, yeah. you know, the the investment associates are, are kind of circling, circling around. And that leads to the question, like, is today, is it a seller's market? Is it indeed really the the power is in the hands, obviously, of the the proven founders, but the founders in general more than it used to be? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say we're in an absolute founders market, which is fine. Um, I mean, we we're cherry, we're founders first, right? So it's it's our mission to make sure we back the right founders and and make them successful and do whatever we can do for them to shine and and be successful. So. That is totally fine for us. Um, and it, but yeah, looking back 20 years, especially in Europe, it was the opposite, right? So the VCs sat in their ivory tower, uh, a team had to pitch, then they figured out over a week if they actually want to invest or not. And, and that's completely different now, right? So rounds happen within days. You have to be really quick. You have to come prepared, right? So the amount of work we do 
um, before even kind of founder interaction is is by now pretty high, right? So we want to come prepared. We want to know exactly what they're doing, what they've done in the past. Ideally, you've done already references and know, ah, oh, yeah, okay, this is a great founder. So you can act quickly. And I think that that has changed massively, uh, especially on the early stage side. I think on the later stage side, now a bit with a dip in the market is changing a little bit. So you also need to have a good business. But uh, but for early stage, it's, it's clearly a founder's market. I, I love that, actually, because it really aligns, right? When yeah. the investor's KPI is speed yeah. and the startup's KPI is speed, then you're much more aligned than you are before. I mean, I remember times where you would pitch and it would take three weeks till you heard something. Now I know VCs say they'll respond in 24 hours yeah. after they've seen a pitch. Yeah. So Absolutely. And like one of our core KPIs is founder NPS, right? So within our portfolio, we track this every six months and ask our portfolio, look, how are we doing? What's our NPS? What can we do better? Like, what are services you would love to have? How are our interactions? What can, like, you know, just getting a feel of what can we as a firm do better? And I think that helps, right? Also, I mean, we ask our founders to, to measure their NPS towards their customers and, and, and our founders obviously in that sense our customers huh? and we need to make sure they're happy and we do everything for them to be successful and, uh, and also when we invest into a new company obviously recommendations from other founders that we have already invested in are extremely valuable and we want to make sure they're really happy with us and, and we put a lot of work into that. That's I think that's awesome that you're you know that investors aren't thinking um, of themselves as just providing a, a financial product anymore and they're really thinking yeah. of themselves as a service provider too. Yeah. That that is again the you know it's uh, it's better than the money. It's all the yeah. value that you get. Yeah, I think look, I think especially in the last few years, right? So capital has become a complete commodity, right? So I think you can't win just by paying a higher valuation or giving a founder more money. Yeah, you can try it. But if you're a good founder, you choose the VC where you have the feeling, hey, they really thought a lot about our business. Um, I want to embark with this VC on a 10 year journey. Uh, it's, it's longer than the average marriage. So you really better think twice. And, uh, and I think that is, is different. And you have to think as a founder, like, is this investor going to add value to my firm? And, and is this investor going to make my firm a better firm? Uh, um, and I think that is the question you have to ask. And, and also, like in this decision process, you have to grill your, the, the VCs you interact with, like how are they going to support you? Um, how can they add value? What is their vision for the business? I think that has all changed a lot. So I want to bring it back to our audience one more time. You talked a little bit about, you know, what you look for in founders and in, in startups. But, you know, since so many of the people that listen here are in their early 20s, they're, they're in business school or, or recently out of it and maybe embarking on their, their first founder journey. Um, as someone that has, you know, been through massive transformation and scale to IPO to building one of the most successful VC firms in Europe, what words of wisdom do you have for young people that are just embarking on, you know, their entrepreneurial journeys? Maybe it's as an investor, maybe it's as a as a founder. But what lessons have you learned that you would want to to share? Yeah. 
Yeah, look, so I'd say if you haven't started your studies yet, so we're going to the really, uh, really early side, then uh, maybe don't study business, but, but go for computer science, right? So if <laughs> if I could change that, I mean, I love VAU, so don't get me wrong, but, uh, but I think having a computer science degree and, you know, by now, whatever, you do your bachelor in computer science and then you do your master's in business, something like that, right? So I think for sure kind of get exposure to that. I think that makes makes a very big difference. Um, and I think, yeah, that's what still many founders are, are lacking. And if you look at the US and, and, and the founder profiles you see there, they are usually more technical than, than European founders, right? So I think that is that is one thing to, to change as a, as a word of wisdom. I think, yeah, I mean, some, and we always have interns here as chair as well, so they're, they're, then once they're done, they ask us, like, yeah, should I do now consulting for two years because I've read it's good so that I learn the ropes there. Yeah, I think you can do it, but if your passion is entrepreneurship, go for that, right? I think what you learn in a consultancy is obviously, or investment banking is kind of structured thinking, problem solving, and PowerPoint and spreadsheets, right? But uh, my feeling is by now, spreadsheets and PowerPoint also learned at university, so you don't need to <laughs> learn it there. Um, and it's also not that important in the end. So if you have a, a high passion for entrepreneurship, go for it, right? I think you learn a lot at joining a kind of a, a scale-up uh, or a hyper-growth company. I think that's always the most exciting one. And then I'll try to get as close to the founder as possible, right? Because I think those are the people that you want to learn from. Uh, most companies by now have this role of like founder's associate or chief of staff. I think those are the classical roles where you learn a lot because you work with the best people in the company. You you sometimes even work with investors. So you really see this kind of big picture. You also see what is going as planned, but also what's not going as planned, right? And and you're really close to the to the problem and to the heart of a company. So I'd probably try that instead of the classical consulting investment banking. Um, I think, yeah, and then kind of find the right co-founder and uh, and 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 do your own thing, right? Uh, also, there I think don't over-engineer it. Uh, on the one hand, like don't try for 12 months to figure out, look, this is the idea. Because the problem is, the deeper you dig into a problem or business model, there will always be arguments against that type of business, right? So, and, and we see this usually that at some point people are like, yeah, look, I, I thought initially it's a great idea, but then now it's not. There's always counter arguments. At some point you just also need to jump into the cold water and, and swim. Uh, I think that's also one learning I think we've we've made. Right. I, I do see a lot of young business students that will spend a year modeling Excel in their apartments yeah. and never talk to a prospective customer, you know? Yeah. So get outside and yeah. and try to, you know, do some discovery, yeah. I think, is totally. the, the big piece. Yeah. Great, great points. Um, I like to wrap up the podcasts with a couple personal questions mm -hmm. to, to learn a little bit about you. Yeah. Um, sometimes they're a little painful, but I make everybody do it. So yeah. you're not the only one. Yeah. I even forced yeah. Steve Blank to <laughs> answer these answer these questions. So um, I always find that you can learn a lot about a person by mm -hmm. what they read. Yeah. So do you have any books on your bedside table or any books that you would recommend? Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, first of all, I have three little kids, so I don't have so much time to read. Um, but um, I usually actually uh, have kind of audiobooks. So, uh, but the last kind of proper book I've read is the this Netflix book, uh, so No Rules Rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it's pretty interesting kind of about their, um, their rules or non-rules they have in the company. So I think they're kind of learned a lot oh, about that. Is that Reid Hoffman too? Uh, no, I think that's that's another one. But I think there there's kind of some interesting elements that that we could also then apply for our portfolio companies. Uh, and another one, which is a bit kind of VC specific, uh, I'd say it's, it's a while back that I read it, but uh, it's called E Boys, and that's the the history of Benchmark, how they got started, uh, which is like totally impressive kind of to to listen to, just to see like. How they think about things, and, and and they've kind of invested in in, in a few of our portfolio companies. It's also seeing like how they do their process um, is is always interesting, right? And and we also see like what can we adapt from it. Obviously, they do Series A, so it's a, a slightly different type of investing. But I think a lot that you learn also by by reading that book. I haven't read that book, but I'm familiar with it. It's like 20 years old, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's super old. So that's and the lessons of, still apply. Yeah, so that's kind of uh, it, it describes like how they um, invest into eBay, uh, um, and then quickly like the company went through the roof. And then there was a company called called Webvan, which was basically online groceries, but 20 years ago. Uh, so I think really like interesting things, and also the way how they think about broadening the partnership in their firm. Uh, so, so what does it need to have another partner? Uh, so like really interesting learnings that, that are in there that still apply 20 years later. Cool. Uh, I might have to pick up that book. I've heard so much <laughs> about it. That sounds yeah. great. Um, last question. Um, and since you're an audiobook guy, um, what's cycling on your playlist? What do you listen yeah. to when the headphones are in and the, the kids are asleep or you're yeah. at the gym or wherever yeah. you do that? So yeah, I'd say kind of it depends a bit on uh, on the occasion. So uh, if it's uh, like in the office or somewhere, then it's like chill out music usually that I that I listen to. The later it gets at night, the the uh, the more kind of house type music it gets. Uh, but I think it sometimes helps me like when I'm still sitting at the desk, whatever at midnight. At least kind of you have good music to listen to. That kind of keeps you awake um, and and makes the the work more fun. So yeah, I'd say kind of this is roughly what's on there. So even when you're on the top of the mountain in VC world, you're still grinding at midnight sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's all right. right? I mean, it's uh, I think the the difference towards I think kind of writing slides in a, an investment bank or on consulting is. Um, you know you, what what you're doing it for, and and I think it's like I, I love my job, right? And, and I think we're very privileged in what we're doing, uh, and it's always like a very humbling uh, exercise to do. And then therefore, like the, the work is fun, right? So it's also, and even if it's at midnight, I mean, you're doing stuff that that you're really interested in, and and it's also different types of work. Sometimes it's working for a portfolio company, sometimes it's more you met a new company, you need to understand the market better, so you start reading up on this, and you learn and learn and learn, and I think that's also what makes our job so exciting. That might be the most profound lesson you shared with us, right? Which is yeah. do something you love, you know, keep Absolutely. on learning and have the growth mindset, and it's a beautiful journey from there. Yeah. Awesome. Christian, man, I'm so glad we got a chance to do this. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot. It's awesome to 
to see what you've accomplished, what is happening in this amazing ecosystem. We have watched Blossom over the years and, and clearly you've played a big role in it. So um, thanks for sharing your story and thanks for joining us. Yeah, Garrett, thanks a lot. It was fun and uh, thanks for coming over. Well, folks, that was Christian Mehrmann, founding partner of Berlin-based VC Cherry Ventures. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes in April. Our dear friend and collaborator, Dries Foms, is returning for some point-counterpoint discussions on things we've recently learned, topics that's made us think, and stories that have made us laugh. Until then, if you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast streaming service. And if you didn't, just skip that part. Bis nächstes Mal.